I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 74 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Bill Connor. Bill is the president and CEO of SonicWall. Bill has led key divisions of AT&T, took Nortel into the $9 billion acquisition of Bay Networks, worked to secure digital identities with Entrust, and brought secure communications and privacy from the consumer to the enterprise through mobile and cloud with Silent Circle. Bill also created and hosted Hacked for Sirius's XM Business Radio. He has been recognized with several awards, including Marketing Computers Marketer of the Year, Tech Titans Corporate CEO of the Year, Federal Computers Top 100 Award, and the National Youth Science Camp Alumnus of the Year. In this episode, we discuss starting an encryption, securing for the SMB market, advanced malware, threat intel, cloud security, breaking SSL in the enterprise, network basics for IoT, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Hello, Bill. Thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Great, Doug. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, great. Well, thanks. And, uh, you know, you've kind of had a, a storied history in the cybersecurity world, but why don't you kind of take us through how you kind of have gone through different things from Silent Wall, or I'm sorry, uh, Silent Circle to Sonic Wall, and really kind of your story arc. Yeah, it actually started at Intrust, a company that's focused on encryption and um, did everything from kind of PKI infrastructure for governments uh, around the world. About 55% of our business was government, and uh, the other rest of that was in enterprises. So, literally, uh, the U.S. passport, the U.K. passports all used our encryption technology uh, on the passports. And even Interpol used it for their national identity and, and their visas around the world and their physical and logical access to their network. So started in that area, was uh, in that company for about 13 years. It was carved out from Nortel. And then uh, it was public, it was private, uh, and then we sold it ultimately to Datacard, now known as Entrust Datacard. Uh, took a sabbatical for a year and then went to Silent Circle. Um, Silent Circle uh, in those days was focused on uh, something called a black phone, which was a secure phone that built had built-in privacy, uh, Android rewritten uh, base architecture. And it had an app that's very similar now to uh, what people know as Signal or WhatsApp. So allowed you uh, to do voice or text around the world in a secure way. And if someone tried to hack you, it would drop that communication uh, midstream. And after raising money there, uh, year and a half, I uh, got the opportunity to come over uh, to SonicWall. SonicWall uh, was actually, I was the first portfolio company, security portfolio company, Tom Bravo. And um, they were the third, I think, uh, acquisition in that going private. But they were the first ones sold to Dell. So I knew the company, knew the strengths of it. And lo and behold, uh, some years later, five and a half years, Later, after they were bought by Dell, uh, Dell carved them and Quest out to actually go um, do the acquisition on EMC. So, Francisco Partners and Evergreen, which is the private 
private equity side of uh, a hedge fund. Uh, asked me to come lead it, so almost three years ago now. Yeah, so after, you know, day one, uh, about three years ago in November, I became the CEO for SonicWall, and since then have uh, kind of rebuilt the company on kind of the brand, all our channels. We had to start from zero, and we're about 18,700 partners now globally. Oh, wow. Uh, around the world. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, and that's an interesting space. I mean, it's one of those where even with the kind of decentralized infrastructure, you know, you still need firewalls. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not something that can easily be overlooked. And it's, you know, can sometimes be looked at as a crowded marketplace. But I think the area where I've seen you guys exceed or, or succeed, I should say, is definitely in the small to medium sized business market because there's, you know, it's, it's a big jump to go to Palos or Junipers and all the other large kind of things uh, when you are a, you know, 1,000, 2,000 person shop yeah exactly uh doug we we have been focused most of our history in smb and uh depending which analysts were arguably either number one or two globally in the smb space uh gartner would say we're number five in the enterprise space uh you know behind the palos and the checkpoints and and those type people but we do have a presence in uh in enterprise as well in government so but our our main our main bread and butter is as you would say is SMB. And that's, that's really been, you know, because we, we look at our, our focus is on automating in real time, you know, threat prevention uh, and detection. So that's really what we do extremely well. We have very high security efficacy and a very good cost of ownership or price point for those businesses. So, you know, those partners in, in our brand, you know, are pretty synonymous in that space. And what we've been doing is really trying to build out the platform and, and education uh, of security because the security landscape is dramatically changing, as you personally know so very well. And one of the, the secret sauces of, of our country is something called our cyber capture threat network. Uh, the capture threat networks has detection and sensors in over a million three around the world in over almost 215 countries. So we take that threat data, you know, every second of every day from these 215 countries and this million three uh, sensors and literally compile that in real time. Uh, using artifact uh, machine deep learning capabilities. And what that allows us to do is have that high efficacy. And we know we've been in deep learning before deep learning was cool. Our CTO, John Gamunder, uh, was in artificial intelligence and deep learning over 20 years ago. And, you know, anything that your leader, your listeners know about deep learning knows it's about data and how you collect that data and over time. And, you know, with 20 years of data of history at an artifact level, we're looking for, you know, malware cocktails. And what I mean by malware cocktails, is it a gin? Is it a uh, vodka? Is it a bourbon? Is it a real tonic? Is it a fake tonic? How much? What's the mix? We're looking for all those malware artifacts that are that are getting rebuilt in these ransomware as a service or malware as a service. Yeah, and that's that's actually a, a good segue. You know, one of the things I think people, you know, obviously, AI and machine learning are still pretty pretty well-used buzzwords in the industry, but yeah. I think they have a lot of value. But how, how do you kind of define the difference between the two and really kind of where their values are in the industry? Yeah, 
when we think of machine learning, uh, we're using actually technically deep learning uh, in terms of it. So uh, no matter how the data comes in, whether it's a PDF, whether it's an email, whether it's streaming data, we break that file into pieces and uh, we call them artifacts technically. And we sample those artifacts looking for an artifact that's contaminated uh, is the way to think of it, or that is contains that malware. And we literally have thousands of terabytes, hundreds of thousands of terabytes of these artifact signatures over the 20 years. And, and that is what gives us that efficacy to find any way they rebuild this malware cocktails. We're just looking for the little piece of it in terms of it. Now, unfortunately, no, you know, with zero days, they're creating new ones every day. Um, and so literally about a little over two years ago, Doug, we, we took the capability called Capture ATV, Advanced Threat Protection. And, and behind our email, behind our firewalls, behind all our products, um, uh, cloud application security, et cetera, even our wireless kit technology, we put this technology behind it. And what it does, it looks for those things we can't see or haven't seen before. Um, so if it's an unknown zero day or, or new kind of malware that's not been detected by us before, we send it to this cloud private cloud, and we run three different engines on it in a sandbox, uh, hypervisor, virtualization, and emula em emulation. And what that basically does, think of it as like an x-ray, you know, that's one of those engines. If you, you've hurt your arm, one, the first engine is going, hey, let me, you know, I look and touch it. Second one is an x-ray. Third one might be an MRI. So, you, you know, look and touch, then you look at the bone, and then you're looking for soft tissue damage. That's what those three engines are doing in parallel. And, and what's amazing is we find about a thousand a day per customer now. I've never seen before malware using those three sandboxes uh, or technologies in the in the cloud sandbox, and then we signature those and send them right back out to uh, to prevent them from uh, contaminating or, or infecting, if you will, any of our other customers around the world. Now, about a year ago, we came up. You know, all these researchers, and you know, I've been in security since before security was cool. Everyone's been looking to figure out how to get to the chip uh, and figure out how can you fake that out? You know, sandboxes were the first way to do that. Uh, we developed something called real-time deep memory inspection. Uh, it's the only technology we know in real time that can look at memory where all malware goes to exploit. And about a year and a half ago, a little year and three quarters ago now, December, two years ago, we, we put that technology behind that multi-engine sandbox in, in Capture ATP. And guess what? We saw that first month about 500 uh, things that even the, the sandbox technology couldn't find. Well, last year that went to about 74,000 for the whole year. And my gosh, this year through July, it's already 85,000. And so what's happening out there is this malware is getting so sophisticated it can work around the traditional technologies. And so we're now able to see it on the actual processor uh, and it's wormed its way through, if you will, the tr traditional sandbox technology. 
Yeah, they're definitely getting uh, sneakier, for lack of a better word. Yeah. But it's at, you know, there's different points in which you have to catch it. And it really kind of comes down to more of that kind of like threat intel and knowing what to look for for IOCs. Um, so it sounds like you're using some of the threat intel feeds that you guys are developed. Do you use any third party sources and, and how do you kind Absolutely. of work? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you work I, with I think external good. parties? Yeah. 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 Everybody uses everybody else is to feed their data because everybody's looking for the multiple different ways of looking at it from large enterprise to small enterprise and globally, right? So that's why our threat network's so global and massive. Um, so it's a good source, but we use, we use you know, a lot of other third-party uh, technology as well to combine with ours, for sure. Does that ever create a problem where there's almost too much data? You know, kind of turn on the fire hose or the black light, whatever analogy you want to use, but all of a sudden you have, you have a lot of data at your feet. You know, it, it, that's probably the biggest issue, especially when, I mean, it's a great question because think of a small, medium business. Uh, unlike an enterprise, they don't have a lot of threat engineers or security engineers sitting around looking for false positives, right? Um, so they can't analyze a lot of SIM data. They don't have people sitting there. And certainly the partners uh, granted MSSPs, it's a new model, right? Uh, or go to market that's, that's evolving right now. But our whole thing has been on security efficacy and automating that for small business because they don't have the capital and they, more importantly, they don't have the resource. If you look now, I think the last number I saw was 2 million short in resources globally uh, in the cyberspace. And probably, as I said, the first line of defense for small medium business is the partner, not the customer. And when you see that with some stuff in the product space, particularly on you know kind of edge devices, things like that, how do you help customers kind of navigate that? You know, if I'm if I'm a small medium sized customer, I say, hey, I, w- I want a firewall, but there's also the you know the cost of implementation, support, and, and engineering that I think a lot of folks don't budget in from a CISO or CIO perspective. They think, oh, let's go buy something. What's the best deal? But they don't factor in the the true cost of ownership. Yeah, you know, it, it's really, an, it's a huge, it's less a problem, I think, for big enterprises, uh, because they have people, resources uh, there. I, I guess most of the ones I talk to there say they never have enough money. Uh, when you go down to the smaller end, it's, it's they want to get it from a partner that they can get multiple things for, their desktop, their servers, and other pieces. I think the hardest thing we see for for our partners and our smbs is understanding like with a with a firewall and we could give it to them whatever way they want it you want a virtual firewall we've got it uh do you want a physical appliance we have that too and it works the same way uh so it's really important to give them options uh that the partner and them can can optimize for for their size and scale the hardest thing we find is to make sure it gets configured correctly. And what I mean by that, uh, a good example, Doug, SMBs, uh, I can tell you only about two people have gotten the answer right. And one of them was a government person, but 14% of all malware coming into a small business around our customers today comes in through non-standard ports. And that's like, that's a big number. It's like one in eight, right? I, I've seen um, it. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and what's crazy is if I go around and talk the way I do with our partners and end users, most of them, if they know what a non-standard port is, don't know that they need to have the firewall on it, uh, covering it to protect it. Uh, the second thing, we're now up to almost 
1,500 encrypted threats per customer this year. That's up from like 1,100 last year. And what's happening is businesses for so long thought encryption must mean it's safe, right? Um, If you see the little yellow lot or if you saw that green bar and it came in encrypted, you thought it was safe. Well, only about 5% of businesses do deep packet inspected on encrypted networks. Huge mistake. Uh, that's why this thing's gone up from uh, almost 1,100 to this year, 1,500 per customer. Um, more and more of the traffic's internet. More and more of it's encrypted. Heck, I mean, you can go, let's encrypt and get them for free. Well, the bad guys go, well, crap, if only 5% of the businesses are checking. That's my, it's like leaving my garage door open and the front door and the windows. <laughs> and so literally we have to keep keep diligent in terms of doing deep packet inspection on that. And then as we say, trust, but verify, put capture ATPN, that layered security approach you and I talked earlier about and put it behind your cloud applications, put it behind your wireless network, put it behind your firewalls and put it behind email. One of the interesting stats on those 85,000 things that we caught with our real-time deep memory inspection, Predominantly, those were Office, Office Docs, and PDFs. So the the malware hitting those can navigate around traditional sandboxing technology and and endpoint technology. So you literally have to capture it and block it using memory techniques because other traditional security technologies will not stop it. And as I say, if you're running a business or even a government, you're running them using email and uh, 365 uh, and PDFs. So really important new threat uh, around that. We've seen a lot of that this year coming out of Russia in the financial spam side. But as I say to the governments, uh, if it's financial spam today from a a state-sponsored person, it might be electric uh, grids the next day, it might be IP the day after, or it could be elections. (laughs) You know, and with that too, you mentioned Office 365 and and certainly with the Azure stack and Microsoft um, and AWS, how are you kind of shifting the focus towards kind of cloud-based infrastructure where identity and access management becomes a big part, but I I think it sometimes overshadows the fact that there's still good old-fashioned segmentation and things that you need to do at your firewall, even in the cloud. Great, great point. IA&M, Identity and Access Management, necessary for sure, uh, but insufficient also, as you would say. Um, Behind that, most networks are segmenting. You know, they're segmenting in the physical network, they're segmenting the local area networks, they're segmenting their application in terms of sensitivity. And we see increasingly on the enterprise side, you know, a blended environment be it a public cloud, be it Azure or or AWS. Uh, We see it in a private cloud, whether it's Hyper-V or VMware. And we still see, you know, a huge demand for physical pieces on appliances or next generation firewalls as well. So our strategy and what we developed over the last couple of years is to give that same sonic OS capability no matter which of those networking platforms you use. If you got it and you want a physical device, we've got that, had that forever. Uh, But that same operating capability now is in public and private cloud, and it can also go behind cloud apps uh, in terms of it. So 
that gives you that same operating capability, that same efficacy and cost point, but gives you know the customers of Sives the choice of they want to how they want to segment their networks, cloud, public, private, or or down on the on the the prem. Oops, trying to crop mute. Um, so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier too was, you know, kind of the type of uh, information that's going over encrypted traffic right now. You know, attackers know they can slip into you know, the encrypted traffic space. And one of the pushbacks I've always heard from particularly smaller businesses was that they, you know, they don't want to break encryption. They don't want to violate user privacy because, you know, God forbid that they put in some kind of acceptable use policy. But what are some other ways that folks can kind of layer that? How do you answer that question when folks are like, geez, you know, I just don't want to, I don't want to have to look into my, my users encrypted traffic. Yeah, we we can do it two ways. Um, we've had a, a partnership with Sentinel One on an endpoint. Uh, our product's called uh, Capture Client, and what we did on that case was actually put the SSL certificate in that endpoint software. What that gives you know a small business the capability is now to have that capture cloud capability, capture ATP and the capture client. So it puts an SSL certificate in there. So when they're uh, at work and that encrypted traffic comes in, guess what? We you know it uses that piece to keep the integrity uh, between that end client and and the server itself, so it's not contaminated as we look at it. Um, it also keeps it secure when they're outside the building and you don't have any of those layers. And face it, most businesses today, the people are traveling, whether you're going to a Starbucks, whether you're at a hotel, whether you're at an airport, uh, whether you're at a conference, you know, you don't have the layers of the network to protect you. So it comes down to that client technology that's on your laptop or desktop, as well as uh, that capture ATP behind it, uh, working in unison with that. So that's one of the ways we dealt with it using the client technology. The other way we've traditionally dealt with it, a little harder to implement, but we've made it a lot easier now is we actually can use that, that DPI. So we simulate the certificate uh, of the traffic coming in. And so it doesn't put the, uh, the content at risk or at jeopardy or visibility. We just look at those artifacts to see if there's any of those malware bits, if you will, uh, in any of the pieces in the PDFs, et cetera. One of the things that's come up too, you know, encryption is obviously something we're we're always pushing for in security for whether it be arrest or in transit. But and one of the, I guess, uh, to more topical issues that's been around lately is certainly it's you know backdooring encryption for governments. And I know certainly that's something that, if I recall, was a silent circle thing. It even popped up on the radar <laughs> yeah. back in the day, and yes. still seems to be prevalent. Is you know law enforcement agencies domestically and internationally want to have access to those keys. How, I guess, what's your take on that? I mean, that's not an easy, yeah, that's, it's, it's that's, a that's an, Yeah, that's, that's been uh, on my plate, I think, for 20 years. Um, I was one of the first ones being quite outspoken uh, relative to the governments at Intrust, uh, you know, because we did a ton of, you know, as I said, 55% of our business was with government. Uh, I've always and still believe that there should be no back doors to encryption to anybody, uh, full stop. Uh, there are a lot of other techniques that you can use around encryption and law enforcement needs to, it's harder, yes, but the minute there's a backdoor, there's a backdoor for everybody. So um, Tim Cook's right and 
Uh, you know, I've been on that page forever and uh, not going to change on that there. I mean, if there's a back door for one person in the government, there's a back, that's a front door for everyone else. So. Yeah. So how, I guess, where do we meet, you know, let's say folks that are policymakers, those in the government that might not necessarily really understand the risk or why we even really use encryption in the ways that we do, because for that reason that, you know, once you build in a weakness, it's a weakness for all. How do we kind of meet them halfway? I mean, where do, where do we bridge this gap? Well, I, I think it depends, you know, on, on the topic, but the, the point of the matter is all encryption is failable <laughs> at some point. Uh, just, I mean, there is no perfect encryption, but the, the reality is the minute you try to force someone to put a hole in it, uh, and that's what it is, it's a hole, it's not a backdoor, it's a hole, then it's impossible to close it. And so the whole point of what you're trying to do around privacy, I mean, I have a very simple formula. Privacy equals security times policy. My privacy for fi my financial transactions, my privacy for my healthcare transaction, and my privacy for Facebook are three very different things, or Instagram. <laughs> Those are four different policies the way I operate. Um, you've got to understand that uh, in terms of if you're a, a regulator or a legislator, what is it you're trying to regulate? Uh, it, what I've always said is there's over 600 different encryptions you can go get online. What we got to make sure is that they're not people understand kind of the, the good encryption versus the bad encryption. So they're not going to download encryptions and taking it uh, off open and, and really taking uh, encryption that already has holes in it uh, by one of the country states or one of their actors. So to me, there there's a big risk in, in, in policy. And that's why I really felt it was important for us to have standards out of NIST in terms of encryption standards that people support uh, that have been tested, if you will, that are good enough and don't have holes created by bad guys. Oh, totally. And, you know, I think one of the things that I, I think policymakers kind of conflate at times and talk to some other folks on the podcast about it, but you know, the difference between kind of privacy and security, uh, that they sometimes get conflated in the public eye. And how would you kind of dissect the two and make it you know, more digestible? Yeah, I, it's that little equation. Privacy equals security times policy. Um, you cannot have privacy full stop without some level of security. Um, and, you know, certainly in Silent Circle's case, certainly in Trust, it was maximum privacy. Um, you wanted that not to be broken and you wanted absolute trust that your communications would be a verbal or, or digital uh, uh, or voice were protected. We're private. Uh, and that's why, you know, those PKI capabilities, you know, ephemeral certificates, um, uh, 591 certificates, all were built around absolute trust uh, and privacy between two endpoints or two entities. Yeah. And I think one of the things too, that even from the, um, you know, maybe even from the buyer perspective of encryption is a lot of folks think encryption is easy. And, and you keep you know, mentioning that when you talk about a PKI or a public key exchange and interfaces, it's, it's, and it's not easy. It's a lot to go into it, to build that architecture, to support it. And I don't think folks really support it. So how do you kind of walk people through that to say, yes, you want encryption, but know what you're buying into? Yeah, it, I think it's become now the encryption part's hidden. 
I think it's now more managing the encryption. The, the company I chair called Sectigo uh, does a really fine job of, you know, doing SSL and encrypted traffic and communications. But it, increasingly now it's about all these different certificates you have, whether it's for email, whether it's for your applications, uh, whether it's for your web. And so certificate management is really the issue now. You've got the certificate itself, but you know, it's not just encryption. It does code signing. Uh, increasingly, everybody's using code signing for you know, their applications and, and their updates. You, you have to, to know that it's not been tampered with. And you know, that's what a digital signature does. So it's encryption, it's authentication, and it's digital signature. How you manage that is becoming the next big thing because i think the encryption itself is all under the hood you know 13 years ago and then trust days that was at the point of there now it's going to come back again because encryption's getting redefined as we speak but it's always getting redefined but i think that kind of is under the hood work and the increasing value and the importance to enterprises is how i manage all those certificates and their life cycles and in, in one of the things that you, I know you've kind of done some work on too, but you know, as you look for, you know, folks to have almost kind of their own digital identity and have that encrypted, something that, that moves away from social security numbers and other yeah. ident- PII that can get compromised. How, how close are we to having that where everybody kind of has their own encrypted key of, that identifies them? Well, I, I think we already do. If you think of a passport, everyone has a digital identity <laughs> that has a passport already, right? Um, increasing a lot of uh, cards have certificates in them as well uh, outside of passports. So a lot of states have you know, uh, digital certificates in their state cards or in their country IDs as you get outside of the U.S. So I think increasingly you'll see, I mean, if you think of IoT, IOT is going to be a certificate because there's not a person around. Uh, so you're going to have a digital certificate in an IOT device. Um, and, and why? Because there's not someone there to do typing uh, in terms of that. So I think as you see that take off and, and, and IOT get focused on, um, you'll increasingly see digital certificates you know, you're already seeing uh, them go asymmetric in set-top boxes. Uh, they've been doing that a while. They've been going into digital meters for quite some time now. Um, you're going to see the IoT wave of digital certificates enter again uh, as people focus on the privacy or security of that IoT device. And when you look at that threat data, just this year, it's like 60% growth in IoT. So what you talked earlier about segmenting networks, when you have that kind of traffic and those things coming into your corporate environment, you better segment those IoT devices off on separate physical and logical uh, networks and manage those. Um, in terms of that, yeah, and I, I've, you know, that's one of the things I've seen firsthand is where, where folks still tend to have either flat networks or very, uh, you know, flat networks in in the sense that they even have VLANs that can talk to each other, and they yep. throw all the IOTs on one phones on another, and then when you're trying to do vulnerability management, the thing kind of comes crashing down. So <laughs> you still need to have that good old fashioned network segmentation, and particularly around IOT devices, do you see them growing as something that's now we're we're seeing more in the enterprise? Are, are we getting to that point yep. where they're 
they're overtaking more than I think people realize that they're even there. I, I think so, Doug. I think it's a good. That's a very good observation because most people don't think of uh, a thermostat as an ILT device, but in reality, after uh, a few breaches, they were right. So, so. ILT is everywhere. It's just not thought of. And so I think increasingly as CIOs uh, and CISOs start to look at their physical networks today, they're seeing a whole different range of things from cameras to thermostats to other digital devices that are connected and going, oh my gosh, uh, that is an opportunity for vulnerability. And as you said, that's when stuff, when you start testing that uh, and cyber arms testing that, you start to get a new reality of the cyber arms race uh, for your business. And I guess maybe that was some of the threat intel that you guys are seeing. Are you, are you seeing those IoT devices? You know, we hear a lot of threats of these things like, oh, somebody can take over your house with a Nest, you know, or a ring yep. door thing. But the reality is, are, are we starting to see that those things, starts of th- those types of devices being attacked as far as more in the enterprise? Um, they certainly can be, are they, is it happening today? I'd say it's more spear fishing or sport fishing. Maybe, uh, I remember one of our SEs was showing how his neighbor had compromised him on his TV and, uh, or with a drone. And, uh, so he compromised him back on his Samsung TV, um, uh, and his, you know, electronic refrigerator. So all those devices in your home, if someone wants to get in, it's pretty good target or easy targets, depending what kind of security they have in their home networks. But I think today, the large piece of it is still at the corporate level, because that's where the pay dirt is. Um, But as I say, anytime someone wants in uh, to compromise a network, a state-sponsored country can do that. There's no protection ultimately against if they absolutely positively have your business targeted. Yeah, if, if you're a target, somebody's going to find a way. Um, That's right. And, and one of the things that kind of leads into a little bit is that you and uh, Michael Chertoff did write a kind of opinion piece a little over a year ago uh, about kind of the accountability that enterprises have to take, particularly in the publicly traded sector, that, uh, you know, about disclosing these types of events that happen and, and vulnerabilities and incidents. Can you kind of walk us through your thought process on that? Because it's something I see bubble up every now and then and then kind of go away. And I, I never know where the inertia is or where it's going to go. <laughs> I, I think the inertia is always to the guy that had it happen, but it was 12 months ago. <laughs> I, I think one of the problems with this is, you know, people don't know un, until it's too late. And you, you look at most of the forensic data, uh, it's coming down. Uh, it used to be two years. I think it's now a little over a year in terms of, you know, from when it happens to when it's found out and disclosed. So, you know, I, I worked early on with Rockefeller on the Security Exchange Commission piece uh, for public companies. Uh, and that's where we brought NIST into the fold. So there's a financial standard uh, for publicly traded companies on disclosure and, and a process that you should go through in terms of testing and looking. And if you do it, you know, uh, you had, to, if it happened, you have to disclose it. So been involved from the early days relative to the SEC and those standards on the Hill that were regulated and, and put into code. We still don't have uh, a national code on that. It's still a state 
you know, all the way back to California 1386. And you know, we've got a patchwork now of state liabilities in terms of exposure, uh, either around privacy uh, or, or breaches. And that's, that's really unfortunate uh, in my mind. Uh, but if you're a board member today, you know, there are places to go uh, to get educated. Uh, it's a little bit like quality was back in the day, you know, you need the lexicon, but if, if cyber's not on your board agenda as a, a public or private company, then, you know, you're going to have a bad day coming at some point. And I think we're certainly seeing it now more with, uh, you know, state regulators that are pushing it with things like uh, California Consumer Privacy Act or CCPA. Now we have GDPR from a couple of years ago, yep. New York State DFS from a couple of years ago. I mean, there's more of this that when you kind of read through the the documents on it, there's there's some level where it says you need to have a reasonable degree of security. Um, yep. So it seems to be that this you know there's going to be more regulation pushing towards that. Do you think that might be the actual kind of tipping point that gets the boards really yeah. to take more action? I, I think so, Doug. It's a, it's a, it's a very good observation. If if you go back to even Cali California 1386, the original uh, legislation in this area of some 20 years ago, the reason that became a, such a strong device, it was a carrot and a stick. Uh, if you had encryption, then you had a safe, a reasonable encryption. You had a safe harbor clause. But if you didn't, you were, you know. But what does every board fear? Class action. You were, you know, you were, you were open to a class action suit. Uh, that's what started this whole piece. I think how that's changed. If you look in the last six to twelve months, lots of fines. I mean, Equifax. I mean, people were getting some big dollar fines. So it's not just <laughs> that you had a breach like a Target. Now. Your privacy, your client's privacy matters, and it's worth something. And there are courts that are going to prosecute that uh, with meaningful dollars in terms of that. And sometimes that cyber insurance is not going to uh, going to you know, help. I mean, Marriott with its over a hundred million dollar fine, right? I mean, these things are are out in the press and they are real. And that's just the fine cost. That's not even the damage to your brand uh, and how people feel uh, about using that. And everyone wants your personal information. And, you know, well, you're going to think twice about it if someone's compromised that. So I think that's the big shift. You, and if you're international, I mean, I spend quite a bit of time in the UK, Doug. Uh, GDPR, well, well, guess what? The UK now is turning that into not how it was actually legislated, but how they're going to use the fines uh, against and prosecute against that is people that have lax security practice, whether it's on the IAM side, whether it's on the encryption side, or whether it's in poor security management. That's where they're going to throw the throw the real book. And you can see that happening over there as well, in the UK especially. Do you think we're finally going to get like you know, one of those, you know, uh, kind of name brand brands get hit with something that kind of wakes people up or is it you think they're going to target some of the smaller ones? Um, I, 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 you know, over there, they're going after the big guns first, yeah. uh, clearly. And I think that's, if you just read the headlines here, it's clearly the big ones that are, uh, are getting the coverage. But what I'll say, Doug, is I, I, I'm around small businesses all the time. They're getting hit, but you won't see them in the headline because they're out of business. 
the difference in Marriott and an Equifax is in, in a small business is they can still be around. When you get at a small business, your brand and your P&L, uh, you know, can't handle the cost uh, in terms of the remediation and or uh, the protection. Do you see more companies, and I, I'm just curious, because I've seen it quite a bit, is a lot of these smaller companies absorbing some of that with cyber insurance, but that's certainly not a uh, bulletproof vest. No, I didn't. In fact, uh, I mean, we talked to quite a few insurance companies. I, I, my first uh, public-private partnership with Shurtoff and DHS I was, you know, the problem with cyber is there is no actuarial table, Right. Um, you know, one of the things we're trying to do with this threat data is work toward, you know, a geographic and or vertical or customer actuarial table. Doesn't mean it's always going to work, but if I can build how that threat landscape's changing and how we can protect it with our layered security, you know, that's something more than we have today because there is no actuarial table. The cyber insurance that's being written largely is at risk because we don't have the data and the data is changing so quickly uh, in terms of it. So you don't know whether it's an act of God or a cyber uh, misstep or whether it's um, one of your employees uh, didn't do their job. So, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) I think, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) I think that's got a lot to do with how cyber insurance and these court cases as you can see, insurance companies and companies are now going after each other relative to whose fault uh, or whose responsibility it is. Is it is it fall under the claim or was it under uh, employee mismanagement of assets? So I think you're going to see a lot of cases on that over the next few years. Mm, definitely interesting point. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find you? Uh, you can sonicwall.com is always our, our homepage and uh, you can reach me there at bconnor at sonicwall.com. Well, great. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes and I uh, greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Doug. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.